0: This episode of For Real is brought to you by Read Harder 2021. Book Riot's annual reading challenge is back. Once again, Read Harder 2021 has 24 tasks designed to help you break out of your reading bubble and expand your worldview through books. With new genres, new authors, and new points of view, the challenge will hopefully help you discover amazing books you wouldn't have otherwise picked up. Read. Romance by trans or non-binary authors, non-European books in translation, middle grade mysteries. Ooh, nice. And more in this year's challenge. Go to bookriot.com slash readharder to get the full challenge task list and to check out the prizing for those who complete the challenge. Yes, I said prizing. That's bookriot.com slash readharder. Welcome to For Real, a bi weekly nonfiction books podcast that puts the spotlight on books that tell it like it is. Or try to. We'll cover new releases, backlist finds, and more. For Real is a book riot podcast and is hosted by me, Alice Burton, and fellow rioter Kim Euchara. We're recording on Saturday, February 13th. Happy Valentine's Day, Kim!
1: Yes, happy Valentine's Day. I was so happy to see that you wrote about Valentine's Day books in that this Friday's edition of the True Story newsletter. I was just I was delighted by that. That was literally
0: my wife's idea. I was like, "What should I theme the newsletter on this week? I have no idea." And she was like, "Well, it's I mean, it's Valentine's Day." <laughs>
1: Yes, and then you said Michelle loves to celebrate Valentine's Day, oh uh, which I also found delighted. Since you also said she doesn't invite you, she doesn't invite me. I'm not invited. Uh,
0: <laughs> she has every other year, um, you know, had like hosted like a brunch in the apartment, mm-hmm. which I have been instructed to just get out for. Which I, you know, what I am, I am very on board for that equality in exclusion for uh, you know these like friend events. Yeah. And yeah, it doesn't. If you're if you're a romantic partner and it's a Valentine's Day celebration, you can't be there. <laughs> yeah, unless you guys have like an agreement that you can't. Then of course, you know, live your life. But yeah, um, this year she drove like goodie bags around and left them for people. It was so it was so
1: nice. We did that for our holiday party. It was so much fun because like. You know, it was December and everything was kind of terrible. And like everyone was so delighted by it because it's just like something different and new in the middle of a time when like nothing different and new is happening ever. Exactly. Yeah, that's so fun. Tell me what was in the goodie bags. I'm curious. Oh, gosh.
0: I think she had like cocktail ingredients for, you know, like their brunch. So it was like a, a champagne themed kind of a cocktail. Mm-hmm. She'll get, if she hears this, which I don't think she will, she'll be so mad. She'll be like, I told you 50 times what was in those bags. <laughs> <laughs> she definitely had like a Valentine's Day themed napkin. She made everyone a card with like different Leslie Nope phrasings around Valentine's Day. Gosh, everyone had like a sparkly scrunchie. There were cookies that she made and iced with like different fun sayings on them. That's amazing. I want to be her friend too. It was a lot. And then because everyone is pretty Zoomed out, they did do something on Zoom, but they did like a virtual flower arranging class. Oh, interesting. So everyone ordered, like they, they we have this like local florist and they just like ordered bouquets from them and then someone from there taught everyone like the like... Tricks and techniques mm-hmm. for your flower arranging, and it was it was very interesting. Apparently, you're supposed to trim the
1: flowers every day and add more water. Wow, that sounds what a fun event! Good job. That sounds so so great. I love Valentine's Day. Such a treat. Yeah, I uh, <laughs> I am doing nothing for Valentine's Day. <laughs> <laughs> We're not really either, but I love the idea. And hopefully, by next year, we will actually be able to like have celebrations. In yeah, person right. Because. You know, that's the dream. I will maybe text my friends,
0: <laughs> be like, <laughs> "That's like the difference one of one of many between me and my wife." I'll like maybe send a text today, being like, oh, happy Valentine's Day."
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh, we all have we all have different skills and bring different things to relationships. So that's a lovely way of thinking of it. Yes, indeed. All right. Let's get into the episode. Our first sponsor for this week is I Am The Rage by Dr. Martina McGowan from Sourcebooks. So we all saw Amanda Gorman captivate the world with her recitation of The Hill We Climbed at the inauguration of President Joe Biden. Uh, That poem, I cried several times. It was beautiful. Uh, I Am The Rage is a poetry collection created in 2020 by a Black woman in America and will appeal to fans of Amanda Gorman and Morgan Parker's There Are More Beautiful Things Than Beyonce. The author, Dr. Martina McGowan, is a retired MD, a mother, and a poet. Her poetry provide insights that no other think piece on racism can. She puts readers in the uncomfortable position of feeling, reflecting, and facing what it means to be a Black American. Contributing her art to Diana Ijata's work has been featured in Vanity Fair, The New Yorker, The New York Times, and The Economist. Uh, these issues written about in raw and unapologetic poems are timely and important in that their issues our nation has faced and continues to face. This poetry collection was created during 2020, many poems shortly after the deaths of Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, and so many others. So that is "I Am the Rage" by Dr. Martina McGowan from Sourcebooks. All right, so we're going to open the episode this week with some new non, or nonfiction in the news. So uh, I have two stories that I want to bring up, and then Alice has you have one. So my first is a book, uh, an upcoming book by Michael Lewis, which I did not know about until I saw it in the New York Times, and it sounds uh, interesting. So Michael Lewis's last book came out in 2018. It was called "The Fifth Risk," and it was about how Government agencies tasked with managing catastrophes had, were being affected by the Trump administration and either being cut back or just not having the resources they need. And so, as the coronavirus began spreading throughout the United States, Lewis kind of went back to some of those sources to see like how is COVID playing out in the way that some of the other disasters that he was looking at in the Fifth Risk were. And so uh, it turns out it is very chilling (laughs) what is happening and how. COVID is showing how unprepared we are for another future, potentially even bigger crisis. So uh, the book is called The Premonition, A Pandemic Story. It's coming out from W.W. Norton in May. And it follows three central characters, a biochemist, a public health worker, and a federal government employee as they confront the pandemic and find that the response from the United States government is woefully inadequate. And I'm excited about this book. I think it will be interesting. I think it will be hard to read. But I also am, like, skeptical a little bit of the idea of writing a book about COVID in the middle of COVID. Like, do we have enough perspective on what has happened to really... No! Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's the answer. Yeah. So I, I'm... I don't know. It feels, like, interesting to, like, come at it from a perspective of that, that he's used in his nonfiction before, but also, like, premature a little bit. Like, how how can we know all of the things when we haven't even gotten to the end of the things yet. So um, anyway, the book comes out in May. I have a feeling it is going to be enormously popular or at least get an enormous amount of press. So we will certainly be talking about it more. Um, But yeah, so we'll link to this article from the New York Times, which is about the book and some of Lewis's thoughts on why he's writing it. But It just feels like one of
0: those things where you have to balance, you know, like wanting to be basically first with Mm – do we even have enough information, which like, like, Mm -hmm. I will not read books about the preceding presidency for like a couple years. Because I'm like, we don't have any perspective on this. We're literally still in the middle of it. How could you be writing about it and have any kind of accuracy? And it's I mean, it's it's similar with this, right? If it's an ongoing situation. um, Although when you when you were saying that, you know, he writes about our, our disaster preparedness. I am reading Max Brooks's Devolution about mm. Bigfoot. And <laughs> <laughs> um,
1: I, like, I want to see how this is going to tie. I'm curious. OK, I'm
0: like 20 uh, percent through it. But it basically the, the whole um, disaster, it's in a, a an eco friendly small community that's totally powered by tech outside Mount Rainier, Mount Rainier explodes, and as far as I've come to understand it, a group of Sasquatch creatures comes and descends upon the town. <laughs> but <laughs> the relation to this is that they were saying, oh, a lot of this disaster came about because they were not prepared. Like, the, the agencies mm-hmm. that were meant to be dealing with a disaster, such as Mount Rainier exploding, weren't ready, and so all of this stuff happened. And then, of course, as a side effect, you have the Sasquatch creatures. But Anyway, it just uh, reminded me.
1: (laughs) So So I have to say, I did not realize the book you were talking about was fiction until like midway through your discussion of it. And I was like, oh, a nonfiction, because you have read and talked about nonfiction books about Bigfoot. So I was like, how is a nonfiction book about Bigfoot going to tie back into this nonfiction book about (laughs) pandemic preparedness? And I was really curious to see (laughs) where that was going to go. And then it turns out it was fiction and I was completely off base. So
0: I mean, it's it's totally understandable why you would think that uh, Max Brooks is you know also the uh, the author of World War Z so yeah, he, this is just kind of his um
1: particular yeah. genre I feel like Oh goodness that was a that took a turn for me in my head as we were going through it uh, <laughs> All right the second uh, article we'll link to is from CBS News and it's about Michelle Obama releasing a new edition of her memoir becoming for young readers so the the young readers edition is coming out in just a few pretty soon. It's an adaptation of Becoming, which is, like, the best-selling memoir, basically, of all time, uh, other than perhaps her husband's memoir that came out about a year after that. Um, So the Young Ragers edition is adapted for children ages 10 and older, uh, includes an introduction for kids written by Obama, as well as three full-color photo inserts. And it will be available on March 2nd in conjunction with the paperback edition of Becoming. So I think that will be exciting and i am jazzed for big adult books to be getting ya adaptations so that's another reason to highlight this news article and book
0: yeah absolutely um and the only thing i wanted to add is the information that okay not only is the extremely popular at the was it at the turn of the century show sex in the city uh that is being revived uh Listeners should know that neither Kim nor I have really watched Sex in the City. And we have, I I think I've picked up a fair amount of information about it through like cultural osmosis.
1: Oh, for sure. Yeah.
0: Right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like I know the basic uh, archetypes of their different characters, I think. Yeah. And um, yeah. Anyway, so they're doing a revival. It is going to be called And Just Like That dot dot dot, which I assume is a reference to the show. And uh, the exciting news is that among these staff writers are uh, Samantha Irby, who, uh, you know, famed nonfiction writer and Mm -hmm. essayist and memoirist and all this stuff. Um, I was much more interested in this series than I have been once I heard that she is coming on. In addition to Irby's work in that, she is also going to be um, a producer, which is really cool. And then also the writer, Kelly Goff, who is another black woman, is going to be a supervising producer and writer, which I believe we were talking right before the show is um, that Sex in the City over the years has been discussed, you know, as being an extraordinarily white show. So to have any of that, let's say, like fixed in the, or at least addressed in some way mm-hmm. in this reboot at least shows that someone's listening
1: which is good. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I was not particularly like, – I didn't watch Sex and the City. I was not that interested in a reboot of it, but like knowing that Samantha Irby is one of the writers makes me moderately more interested in it, uh, and I would at least like watch a few episodes, I think, just to see her influence on all of that because she's so funny, and I think we will just bring a lot to it.
0: Did you see the one person pitched, because Samantha, you know, Kim Cattrall is not going to be on it, they said that they should have a different actor playing – samantha
1: every episode <laughs> which i thought was fantastic I was like, yes please uh, do that that'd be hilarious and like very meta in some ways i yeah that'd be hilarious all right so um that is some nonfiction news so interesting adaptations and all that kind of stuff so uh, we will shift gears now into our um main segment for this episode we're gonna skip Uh, New books and kind of combine it with our main theme. Since it's Black History Month, we thought it would be great to highlight entirely, spend the entire episode talking about new nonfiction by Black authors. So we've each got five new nonfiction books out within the last month or two, or coming out in March, because there's just, there's a ton and it's awesome and we're excited to talk about them. Yep. All right, so uh, my first pick for this episode is "The Three Mothers: How the Mothers of Martin Luther King Jr., Malcolm X, and James Baldwin Shaped a Nation" by Anna Malachi Tubbs. Anna comes out February second from Flatiron Books. And so, as the title suggests, this book is about the mothers of three major civil rights leaders. So the three women are Bertus Baldwin, Alberta King, and Louise Little. And these three women were all were all born within six years of each other. Their sons were all born within five years of each other. And so, they're three women whose lives mapped in a very similar trajectory, and allow the author to kind of look at Black womanhood in the 1900s, Black motherhood in the 1920s, and then their influence on the civil rights movement in the 1960s. And so... Uh, each chapter of the book is about like a similar period in the women's lives. So there's a chapter sort of about the birth of their sons. There's a chapter about the deaths of their sons. There's a chapter about um, their legacies. There's a chapter about like their early childhoods. And it kind of gives you the, each of their stories packaged together in that chapter. And so the book, both through, through all of these stories, celebrates Black motherhood and looks at the knowledge that is passed through generations through the teaching by of Black women to their children. There's a lot in the book, too, about how black women bring children into a world filled with danger, how black women are particularly aware of how they and their children are treated differently and the violence that their children will face in situations that should seem safe, and how that affected these three mothers and affected the way that they raised their three sons who became leaders in the civil rights movement. So um, the author uses a lot of scholarship by Black feminists in sociology, history, political science, and women who are writing sort of outside of the formal academy and academic research, and just brings all those voices into a book that looks at Black motherhood through these three stories. And I... I don't know, there's just a ton about this book that I really loved as soon as I picked it up. Um, I like the approach of sort of taking these three stories. I like the way she has it organized by kind of giving each of the chapters of their lives a chapter and kind of showing how their lives were similar and different. The author um, became pregnant but as she was starting to write the book, so her experience of black motherhood is also kind of interwoven in these stories, and I like that. Um, I like the variety of outside voices she's bringing in. Um, And plus, as a bonus, it is a very readable book, um, and it is not super long. The main text before footnotes is just under 200 pages. So um, it gives kind of this nice big overview, but also feels very approachable and kind of quick to pick up and read. So I have really liked this one. Uh, It is The Three Mothers, How the Mothers of Martin Luther King Jr., Malcolm X., and James Baldwin, Shaped a Nation by Anna Malachi Tubbs. That is so... Just the idea that Martin
0: Luther King, Malcolm X, and James Baldwin were all born within, like, five years I know. of each other. Yeah. And just had such a huge effect on the culture. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that feels like – oh, that feels, like, almost, like, magical. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. I just really love when um you have these – very, very um powerful figures and and like then someone decides to write a book about how they interacted, and in this case, with this lens that feels extra interesting with you know just what were their influences growing up, how did the information that they're and and the way that their mothers brought them up lead them to you know like have these opinions as adults and then like mm-hmm. make all these changes, oh gosh. That's really great. Also, I didn't know it was that short. Yeah. Which is always very exciting for me. (laughs) I know. I love it. I love it too. (laughs) Okay. My first pick is Surviving the White Gaze, a memoir by Rebecca Carroll. It was out uh, February 2nd from Simon & Schuster. Carroll is a podcaster and cultural critic for New York Public Radio. And in this memoir, she writes about essentially overcoming this quote-unquote completely white childhood in order to forge her identity as a black woman in America. So her story sounds incredibly difficult. (laughs) Like she was, um, her parents, like her birth parents were, um, her mother was white, her father was black. She was adopted by a white couple in New Hampshire who didn't really, like, you know, pay any attention to like any kind of sensitivity with with raising a daughter who was you know half white half black, and just kind of and had this like l- like laissez faire approach right to parenting. Mm-hmm. So she's growing up with also her school like everyone was white. Then she meets her birth mother, who is a- essentially a narcissist and constantly is just like tearing her down, and so she's trying to you know like both like have this kind of connection with the, you know, like her, her black heritage and the parts from her father's family, but then also is constantly barraged by this, you know, world of whiteness. And just, I know that we've had just a lot of, we've had a lot of memoirs, I feel like that are examining, you know, like growing up and like racial identity and all this. And I feel like this is an especially, not especially interesting, but like a very different, lens from like what i've seen necessarily i mean we Mm -hmm. definitely have like adoptive stories etc but like the the specific circumstances that comprise carol's like childhood and then like you know growing up years i guess those are teen years it's just it's really interesting it's tough you know if you have like i would say especially issues with like a toxic parent then this would either be maybe a cathartic experience or a little difficult so um to just keep that in mind but i just i don't know i find memoirs like this just especially just yeah like fascinating so that is surviving the white gaze a memoir by rebecca
1: carroll yeah i had that one on my list too it sounds amazing and very intense but the best memoirs kind of are, right, so. Well,
0: and it's also blurbed by, like, Roxane Gay blurbed it and, like, Jamie Attenberg oh, yeah. and just, like, people who, who you know, you just really respect as writers. Mm-hmm. I just was like, yeah, this, this all ties together and makes sense in terms of, like, it's just a good book. Um, and I'm excited to talk about
1: it this week. Nice. Very good pick. All right, my uh, second pick is one that we have talked about on the podcast before, but I finally had a chance to read some of it, and I am, like, more jazzed than ever to talk about it, so that's great. Uh, so the book is 400 Souls, A Community History of African America, edited by Ibram X. Kendi and Keisha Blain. Uh, which we talked about this one on our most anticipated books of the first half of the year episode. And I, like I said, I'm so glad to say it is like as good as I anticipated it to be. So that's great. Um, It came out February 2nd from One World. And it is a history of black people in America from 1619 through 2019. So every little chapter is written by someone different. So it's a community history and it brings in a lot of different voices. Most of the pieces in the book were written in 2019, so in the opening, Kendi notes that like the, everyone is sort of speaking or writing from like the same moment in history, and they're all kind of reflecting back on that 400 years in the pieces. And so there are 90 different contributors, each writing a short piece about a five-year period between 1619 and 2019. I, I really I love the way this book is organized like every piece is like two to three pages they're about the same length and so you get sort of this like consistent rhythm of voices as you're reading and then after every 40 year section there's a poem that kind of sums up themes and ideas about the black experience in America during that 40 year time period and so it gives you these really cool transitions between it in the introduction, Kendi describes the book as kind of a choir coming together, and so that there's a reason that it's kind of so regimented, and then you get these poems as like soloists in key moments, and I really loved that description of it because I think it's really accurate to what they're trying to do, which is to bring a bunch of different voices together to all reflect on Black history in America, in America and, and what it has meant and how it has changed over time. And so, you know, with any book like this, there's some inconsistency in the pieces. Some, like, obviously resonate a little bit more, kind of sparked my imagination more than others. But I love that they all kind of took a different approach. So some are very academic. Some are really personal. Um, some are kind of more creative. They feel a little bit almost like short stories. Some give you context about kind of the theme that they're going to cover about their five years. Others just sort of like drop you in and don't give you any background. And I kind of like that sometimes too because you get to sort of decide I want to learn more or not. And each piece moves along so quickly you don't really get bogged down in any of that. So the pieces are kind of all over the map. There's some about big historical figures. There's some about... Names and voices we have never heard of or had forgotten about. Some are about like laws or social strategies or places. Just they're all coming at it from a slightly different way. But when you kind of put it together, it is this really beautiful choir of voices. And so the book, quote, unlocks the startling range of experiences and ideas that have always existed within the community of blackness. And it's just it's really it's really excellent, and it's a, a big, thick book, but because of the way that it's structured, it feels really approachable, and you can kind of jump in and just start under exploring things and, and learning about different stuff. And I wanted to also point out that the cast listing for the audiobook is actually <laughs> super amazing. I think they do have, yeah, it says they have 87 different narrators, so every section is narrated by someone else, and they just have all these, you know, amazing voices. Keisha Blaine reads part of it. Angela Davis reads one section, Alicia Garza reads her section, Nicole Hannah-Jones, who did the 1619 Project, reads her section, um, but they also have like actors and other voices coming in for different places. So I think it's just Soledad O'Brien, Leslie Odom Jr. It's just, it's amazing. So I think this one might be really interesting on in audiobook as well, but I'll stop gushing now. That is 400 Souls of Community History of African America by Ibram X. Kendi and Keisha Blaine.
0: Oh, shoot! Now I'm like, "Well, do I want to get that on audiobook? <laughs> that sounds yeah. really,
1: really good. yeah, I mean, obviously we'd
0: we'd already kind of addressed just the the text itself, but shoot, I don't even do that many audiobooks but that sounds great. Um, You know what else I was thinking for this book when you were talking about, you know, how it is written by so many different contributors and you can kind of dip in and out of it? This would be so good as like a -a readathon book.
1: Oh, yeah. Because Mm -hmm.
0: you can be like, I'm going to read, you know, like three pieces right now and then I'm going to put it away and read something else and then I can like go back and do it. Oh, great.
1: Yeah, and because the pieces are also short, like each 40-year section, it's like 30, 35 pages. So you can read like that whole phase put it down and then move to something else it's very it's like a a very satisfying reading experience which i i didn't really expect when i picked it up i guess oh because it seems like a like a big heavy book yeah it does but like the way it's structured and the way that they're approaching it like it is very accessible and just doesn't feel like a heavy history book
0: that's awesome speaking of Not a
1: heavy history book, but still a history (laughs) book.
0: Yeah, see what I did there? Um, My next book is The African Look Book, A Visual History of 100 Years of African Women by Catherine E. McKinley. McKinley is a former Fulbright scholar, a curator um, specializing in photography. This came out January 19th from Bloomsbury, so also like pretty recent. The premise for this book was that a lot of, especially, I think, Americans, I'm not sure about other countries, grew up with photos of African people, particularly African women, right, as this sort of like, the quote is, displays of exotica, or just this like anthropological look at, you know, like this village in, in, you know, nondescript Africa. And the idea behind this was to push back against that, which I love like so much so because mckinley is a curator um specializing in photography and uh she has this very extensive collection of both historical and contemporary photos and this whole like hundred year um time span goes from 1870 to 1970 which you think about the 1870s this is so early in the history of photography and then going up to the 1970s where i mean photos from the 1960s are I think especially, are just like so fascinating. So you've got like the fascination of the past and then like the just sort of like, I think of like saturated color and all this stuff Mm -hmm. when I think about 1960s photography. So having both of those, and then of course all the time in between. Uh, The photos are by celebrated African masters, um, African studios that are extremely well-known in their area, and then anonymous artists. There's also... A section that is photos by Europeans, which I think was such a brilliant move because then you have, right, it sort of like highlights how racist, how condescending this whole like whole setup is like the photos that we are used to seeing that were taken by either, you know, Europeans or Americans who came to Africa are in juxtaposition next to these photos taken by African people. And it's just especially, you know, again, focusing on women, it's – I just think it's a really special book. And (laughs) I just really wanted to talk about it this week. So, again, that is The African Look Book, A Visual History of 100 Years of African Women by Catherine E. McKinley. sounds beautiful. Like, what a fun book to pick up. Yeah, great pick. And with that, uh, our second sponsor – is Book Riot Insiders, the digital hangout spot for the Book Riot community. Enrich your reading life with our Book Riot Insiders perks. So we have three levels for insiders. There is short story, there is novel, and there is epic. You can try out any level for free for two weeks. So you just log in, make an account, I assume. And then you just pick your level that you want to try. I probably would recommend Epic because it's free for two weeks. So just like see if you like that level. Then for podcast lovers, there is Insiders, which the Book Riot Insiders exclusive podcast, you get remixed. And then also the Read Harder podcast, which gives recommendations for the Read Harder challenge, task by task. Remixed is where like, <laughs> so the other week, I recorded an episode about the X Files with uh, the one another podcast host from like across the Book Riot podcast network. Like it's very fun. Kim, what was your last one about?
1: Uh, we talked exclusively we, an entire remixed episode about beverages. Uh, oh, that's
0: right. That sounded so yeah. good.
1: <laughs> <laughs> um,
0: so you can get Book Riot insiders at both the novel and the epic levels, and also access to the Read Harder podcast. You can also get exclusive access to bookish deals, behind-the-scenes newsletters, um, our epic book club, and more. So to check this out, go to insiders.bookriot.com. Again,
1: that is insiders.bookriot.com. Excellent. So fun. All right. Uh, My next pick is also kind of a visual book so kind of jumps off yours a little bit. It's called Ida B. the Queen, The Extraordinary Life and Legacy of Ida B. Wells by Michelle Duster, which came out January 26th from Atria. And so Ida B. Wells is one of those people in history that I feel like I should know way more about than I actually do because she fits into so many of my like interest areas, um, but I actually know very little about her. And so I was excited to pick up this book. It's a biography um, to learn more about her. So um, during her lifetime, the FBI classified her as a dangerous Negro agitator, but she was also a journalist, a suffragist, an anti-lynching crusader. Um, She was born in 1862 as a slave in Holly Springs, Mississippi. And then in 2020, she was given a Pulitzer Prize. So like just an incredible life and an incredible career and incredible contributions to the United States. Um, So Michelle Duster is her great-great-granddaughter. And so she gets to bring in some of her family's perspective on Ida B. Wells into this book. So This one, I saw somebody on Instagram call it like an adult textbook in the idea that like there's a lot of illustrations and colored pictures and like sidebars and timelines and stuff. So it really does kind of look like a history textbook, except it's way more interesting and it has a lot of cool stuff in it. So Ida B. Wells, throughout her life, she um, refused to exit a train car meant for white passengers and she had a lawsuit about that that started to kind of move those things forward. She was an anti-lynching crusader that brought those things to light through her journalism and her activism. She helped co-found the NAACP and just amazing work. And so... This biography covers all of that, but it also connects her legacy to other pioneering black women and men throughout history, as well as contemporary activists who have connections to the way that she approached all of her work. So I just, this one's really, it's beautiful. It's not super long and it's got all these photos and different kind of sidebars and stuff about her life and giving them context and everything. So I'm really excited to get through this one because I feel like I just should know more about Ida B. Wells than I actually do. And so, yeah, it's going to be one of my picks for this month to definitely get through. So that is Ida B. the Queen, The Extraordinary Life and Legacy of Ida B. Wells by Michelle Duster. It also has a very pretty cover. It does. The cover is gorgeous. (laughs) My next pick
0: is a graphic novel. Um, Is that – do we decide what to call that still? I feel like I – No, I still never know. There's no set name that I've seen. I've seen a, a variety. But regardless, okay. It is The Black Panther Party, a graphic novel history by David F. Walker, illustrated by Marcus Kwame Anderson, out January 19th from 10 Speed Press. David F. Walker has previously written, um, for a, a comic book version of Shaft, as well as a novel. Um, he, he's written for Luke Cage for Marvel and a, uh, graphic novel version of The Life of Frederick Douglass. So, um, just like a lot of, um emphasis on either Black lives, Black figures, Black history. Uh, And so coming to this, he already had a lot of that experience under his belt. This is a really detailed and contextualized history of the Black Panther Party. So if you grew up kind of like me just hearing about the Black Panthers as like revolutionaries, but you didn't know what the surrounding circumstances were, what they were responding to, etc. This is a good um, kind of primer, not even just primer, but just like a way to get into that history. Um, The Black Panther Party was founded as the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense and was a uh, Black Power political organization founded in 1966 in Oakland, California, um, and was active until uh, 1982, so for about 16 years. And it had chapters all over the United States. It had some international chapters. And Basically, so from the beginning, one of its its core practice was it had this open carry armed citizens patrol initiative, which was called cop watching, which was to monitor the behavior of officers of the Oakland Police Department and challenge police brutality in the city, which honestly just feels sadly extremely relevant. As well, they instituted the Free Breakfast for Children programs, which was to address food injustice. Um, They had community health clinics in order to offer education and the treatment of diseases, including uh, sickle cell anemia, which, you know, overwhelmingly impacts the Black community, and uh, tuberculosis, and then later HIV and AIDS when that um, epidemic hit. So that's just some of what they did (laughs) like like i'm not uh there's just there's so much to their story and i love the art for this like marcus kwame anderson did a, a fantastic job um the art for a comic book unsurprisingly can or a graphic novel can make or break it for me like if i like the writing but i don't like the art i'm like i can't get through it and this is so good so again that is the black panther party a graphic novel history by david f walker illustrated by marcus kwame anderson
1: oh that sounds so great i love i in addition to like ya adaptations of history books i love comic book history books like i just think it's so it's so fun that we're starting to expand out the way that we talk and think about history, and in some ways, making it like more accessible for people. Yeah, um, who like are either intimidated or don't want to pick up nonfiction because it seems too hard. So stuff like this is just—it's so great. I love it. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, my next pick is uh, a book about the economy, and it's called "The Sum of Us: What Racism Costs Everyone and How We Can Prosper Together" by Heather McGee. Uh, came out or is coming out February sixteenth from One World, and um, this one is fascinating. So um, Heather McGee is an expert in economic and social policy, and she has spent her career looking at how the American economy often fails American citizens. So she used to work at this think tank. Now she chairs the board of Colors of Change, which is the nation's largest online racial justice organization. And so... This is a book that looks at inequality and economic inequality and the idea that racism has a cost for everyone not just for people of color. And so she looks at things like the financial crisis, rising student debt, collapsing public infrastructure and shows how all of those different things can be tied back to racism and that racism and how it affects those different economic things have costs for all people and are is contributing to greater inequality in our economy which is bad for everyone. So A big focus of the early part of the book is the idea of the zero-sum paradigm, which is basically that the idea that progress for some people would come at the expense of others. And she looks at how this zero-sum paradigm, especially as it is understood or believed by many white people, has really contributed to economic policies that are bad for both people of color and white people, and that we're all losing because we live in this zero-sum paradigm. So she looks at the origins of that idea, how it impacts public policy, how it impacts political parties and various different social issues, and then how it hurts people. So um, the book is a lot about about how, quote, public goods in this country, from parks and pools to functioning schools, have become private luxuries, how unions collapsed, wages stagnated, and inequality increased, and how this country, unique among the world's advanced economies, has thwarted universal health care. And I just, and then the book will go on to kind of look at how different ways we can think about the economy that we will combat some of this inequality. Um, and I haven't gotten there yet, so I don't really want to like speak on it because I know that I couldn't speak about it accurately. But this is just interesting. And for me, it's been very eye-opening because it's showing how a lot of ideas we hear about inequality, the economy, social programs, and stuff either were can be directly tied back to racist ideas and continue to have sort of racial implications that maybe are not as obvious as overt racism that we sort of all can kind of agree is not okay. And so things that seem kind of innocuous or like oh well that's you know just a thing like she tells this story about how a student in her school when she was a, a middle schooler said something about how they believed in um, social equality but fiscal responsibility and she's like, like that, that's racist and, and it's tied to racist ideas and then goes on to explain that and I just it's been really really eye-opening and like a thoughtful and interesting way of looking at the economy and inequality and how that affects people there's a fascinating section on public pools and how like racism (laughs) is why we don't have free public pools anymore and segregation is why we lost those things and how that's just kind of bad for everyone um it's just it's deeply fascinating so i'm gonna buy this one when it comes out in a couple of days because i really want to read it fully so that is the sum of us what racism costs everyone and how we can prosper together by heather mcgee
0: oh my gosh <laughs> i'm gonna buy that too that sounds <laughs> so good wow and it's like okay not to get into all like non-fiction nerdery and stuff but i just especially love when people are like um no this is factually either like unequal racist whatever and here is why like these mm-hmm. are the numbers this is the argument like this is oh it's just like presenting a case and having all this evidence and i just it's so satisfying because <laughs> it's just like you are technically wrong and here is legitimately why
1: oh yeah it's really good, good. anyway <laughs> okay
0: my next pick is black magic what black leaders learned from trauma and triumph by chad sanders is that february 2nd from simon and schuster Chad Sanders uh, was working in Silicon Valley, which is um, an extraordinarily white place, and basically decided that in order to be successful, he needed to change his wardrobe, his behavior, his speech, and basically everything that connected him with um, his Black identity. And then finally decided to... You know, stop doing this. And he began to, you know, get more exciting projects and just work better with his colleagues by not like stifling this part of him. And he accounts for this by uh, this thing that he calls black magic, which um, is like all capital, you know, capital B, capital M, black magic. And it is uh, resilience, creativity, confidence that was forged in his experience navigating America as a black man. And it says that he. Black magic has emboldened his every step since, leading him to wonder, was he alone in this discovery, and were there others who felt the same? So this is, um, like a lot of books now write a series of essays, but in it, he also interviews a number of um, other successful Black executives, journalists, activists, who do share this. So, you know, his initial question wondering, like, have other people discovered this? The answer is yes. <laughs> and um, he talks to them about, like, how that's shown up in their careers and their lives. And uh, the sort of, they share their origin stories, which is, you know, like a, a fun, um, I just feel like it's it's a a real sort of like positive take on this, right? Which mm-hmm. is exciting and, again, different. Like a lot – you know, all of these books that we've talked about today I think are really different and sharing these experiences in different ways and different – talking about different aspects. And this one I liked because it's, you know, more more career-focused, which I mm-hmm. feel like I just – at a point – I'm in a point in my career where I'm like, yes, tell me about your career journey. <laughs> um, so – just hearing about like various people and how they got to where they are and what factors they attribute that to um is really neat. So again, that is Black Magic: What Black Leaders Learned from Trauma and Triumph by Chad Sanders.
1: Yeah, I totally agree with what you just said, right? Like it's I think it's it's exciting to see black authors and authors of color starting to write in areas that are outside of black history because it just brings a different perspective. And so like this like career book that's a genre or, like, a area of nonfiction where I think we don't see that as often, and we're starting to see it more. And so it's fun to, like, see new voices in areas that we've traditionally not seen them within the genre of nonfiction, if that makes sense. Yeah. So, yeah, I think that's a really great pick. Um, and my last one is not quite as cheerful as that, but I think it kind of does something similar. Uh, it's called Grieving While Black, an anti-racist take on oppression and sorrow by Bresha Wade which is coming out March 2nd from North Atlantic Books. And this one is An Exploration of Grief and Racial Trauma Through the Eyes of a Black End-of-Life Caregiver. So Risha Wade uh, has served as a hospice and palliative care specialist in Los Angeles County. She has supported people through grief and transitions as both a doula and an ordained Buddhist chaplain working in jails, hospitals, and that kind of thing. And so she brings this whole experience as an end-of-life caregiver to talk about grief, but also... What I have liked about this book is that it is expanding on our ideas and conceptions around grief. So um, she writes about how we think of grief as sorrow after loss, but she really argues that it's something bigger than that, that grief is connected to the things that we fear, the things that we love, and the things that we aspire towards. And there's a lot in this book that is making me think, I think highlighted a passage on every couple of pages, and one that really stuck out to me is this. The opposite of survival is death. Anytime something is connected to our survival, it is implicitly connected to grief and fear of loss and so the whole book is about how we can each of us like start to attend and understand and live with our own grief so that we can then engage with others both in grief over specific incidences and kind of the larger grief that we all experience and she shares a lot of specific instances but also explores how ongoing trauma and grief is connected to systemic oppression and just these really big ideas and she's pulling together in a very approachable and thoughtful and interesting way and i'm just i it's a tough book in some areas but also like so many smart and interesting things and ways of re rethinking about grief and about expanding on it and especially in a time when i think we're all like doing this pandemic time where like there's sort of this like collective grief about all of the things that we're losing and missing and that i think this book really has a lot to say for that aspect of our lives right now too so I I like this one so much it's really great. Grieving While Black an anti-racist take on oppression and sorrow by Abrisha Wade. Gosh. And like anyone who is who is you know interacted with an
0: end of life caregiver, you know, like mm-hmm. in the context of their family knows like that is such I just really respect anyone who is doing that job and it's yeah. such a like a lifeline amidst, you know, like the the grieving process and mm-hmm. yeah, that's just I'm I'm glad that she wrote a book. <laughs> that's great
1: yeah and i i too think like the like nonfiction about grief is also has historically been a very white space and so i, I like bringing more voices into that as well because it just brings a broader and more nuanced perspective and and adds to those different things so yeah yep. all right so uh that is a bunch of new books by black authors to celebrate black history month i like i love how different all of those were and like different approaches and Yeah, that was really fun. Good picks, Alice. Yay, ditto. (laughs) All right. And so with that, we will wrap up by talking about the books that we're reading uh, right now at this very moment. Um, The book I am reading, in addition to kind of popping into all of those, is fiction, uh, The Mothers by Britt Bennett, which is a book set in a contemporary Black community in Southern California. Uh, It opens with a young woman named Nadia Turner, who her mother has just died, and she is processing that grief, and she starts to hook up with a local pastor's son, who is a little bit older, but uh, has some of his own personal issues um and then she becomes pregnant and they decide that she's going to have an abortion and then they continue to cover that up and then it kind of spins out from there and has ongoing impacts on them and their relationships and their connection to the church that they are both a part of and it's just really good britt bennett is so talented and I just – it's a page-turner. It's really great. So I'm going to finish that this weekend, I think. So The Mothers by Britt Bennett. Super good. Um, your Minnesota accent came out a lot right
0: there. You were like, <laughs> Britt Bennett is so talented. <laughs> no, that was an exaggeration, but I'm just Not very much. Uh, that was charming. Not very much. Okay. I am – I'm, like, always reading way too many books and then, you know, finishing none Indeed. of them, but I recently bought uh, – there's an organization called Humble Bundle where you can buy bundles of, of books, and they had a – bundle called Be the Change, and it offered a lot of books by Black authors and featuring um, Black characters. One of their nonfiction books in the bundle was The Sisters Are All Right, Changing the Broken Narrative of Black Women in America by Tamara Winfrey Harrison, which is really good. It's another one that's like pretty short, but Harrison, she talks about how she started looking at how black women are portrayed or thought of in, in society and then like looking back at the origins of that i don't think it's overly academic but is clearly very researched so that's like a really fun meeting of those two things mm-hmm. you know like as opposed to uh endlessly footnoted whatever it's just like she clearly knows what she's talking about and is presenting it in a really readable way so i'm i'm really liking that but again that is the sisters are all right by Tamara winfrey harrison and with that, you can find us on social media. I am at It's Alice Time, and Kim is at Kim the Dork. Our amazing audio editing for this episode was done by Jen
1: Zink. Thank you, Jen. And if you feel so inclined, we would love it if you would take a minute to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Well, uh, that helps people find us more easily, and then you can subscribe while you're there so you get new episodes the very minute that they come out. So with that, I am Kim Yukara. And I'm Alice Burton. And we thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Four Real Podcast.